tonight, the topic of my message is, and I want to preface, so Aleem's talking about teaching time. I feel really unqualified to do teaching time. The best I can possibly hope to do is random thought-provoking time is what I'm aiming for. Any form of teaching, there are people far more qualified for that. Um, the best I, you know, what my hope is sort of going, hey, here's some things I'm not sure about. You know, it's never, I'm never going to teach you answers. I'm just going to leave you questions and then go, all right, you guys tell me what you think because that's about all I've got. Love Jesus. Uh, <laughs> all right, that wasn't quite where I was going, Lorraine, but I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah, Mandy thinks I've got enough of a God complex anyway. Um, so, uh, so something that we often talk about here at Found is the sort of the human nature to divide things up into black and white, right and wrong, good and bad, drawing firm line, you know, that we have this instinct to draw lines in places and that reality is never quite as clean as all of that. And um, within that, we tend to sort of go, what we'll do is once we've drawn these lines and go, okay, well, these people are in, these people are out, these people are good, these people are bad, we tend to then use that as an opportunity to get up on our high horse and, you know, be able to decry people on the other side, to be able to tear them down. And um, what research has shown is that when we get into these sort of situations, we tend to be very self-selective in the material that we hear. That if we hear something that supports our cause, we'll go, yes, that's great, I love it. If there's something that doesn't support our case, we'll sort of manage to minimise it, not actually listen to it and push it to the side. And um, so, you know, that tends to make these divisions just grow stronger. And then even if we, you know, go through a process where we break down that, go, you know, realise that we've made a mistake, we just draw a new line somewhere else and start operating under that. And, um, you know, this is humanity's story throughout history, but it's also something that the church has done a lot of. Um, and so the topic of my message tonight is, well, the Bible says, and yeah, um, something nice and easy and gentle for a Sunday night. Um, but so partly, you know, the, the Bible sort of often gets talked about as being the user manual for life. But what we have is that people then come and have their interpretations of it and are very convinced this is how the Bible is telling us to live our lives. And over and over in history, we've seen that a lot of things that people have been certain of haven't actually been the case. So I'm doing a bit of a historical tour through this stuff. Um, we've got some other weeks that might be coming up where Aleem and Mandy and others might be talking about their interpretations of some of these different things. But I just wanted to give a historical context of how we, we don't always get it right. Um, so I want to start out talking about Martin Luther. So he's a key figure in the birth of Protestantism. Uh, you know, brought the Bible out of the hands of the clergy and gave it to the masses, you know, that there was this concept that forgiveness was something that was bought from the church and he went, no, that Jesus has offered forgiveness to all. And um, really revolutionary in a lot of that stuff. But um, so he has some other things that aren't so, you know, they're a little bit more questionable. So here's some writing he did about Galileo. People gave ear to an upstart astrologer who strove to show that the earth revolves, not the heavens or the firmament, the sun and the moon, to show that the earth revolves, not the heavens or the firmament, the sun and the moon. This fool wishes to reverse the entire science of astronomy, but sacred scripture tells us that Joshua commanded the sun to stand still and not the earth. And unfortunately, that's some of the more mild uh, stuff that Martin Luther's written. So in, 19, in, sorry, in 1543, he wrote a treatise called 
on Jews and their lies. So, you know, you think... So, he gives Alim a run for his money with controversial titles with that, I reckon. Um, but in it, he laid out the following action plan for sharp mercy, as he called it, that could be taken against Jews. Number one was burn their schools and synagogues. Number two was transfer Jews to community settlements. Number three, confiscate Jewish literature, which was blasphemous. Number four, prohibit rabbis to teach on pain of death. Number five, deny Jews safe travels between communities to prevent the spread of Judaism. Number six, appropriate their wealth and use it to support converts and to prevent the lewd practice of usury. And number seven, assign Jews to manual labor as a form of penance. And so Martin Luther was a high profile figure in Germany. So we look to him as sort of the birth of the Protestant uh, movement. But you look at that and you go, a few hundred years later, this is, you know, that he quite possibly laid the seeds for Nazism within that place. You know, there's a lot of other contributing factors that go into that. But you need to sort of look at those in context of each other and go, that somebody who was right about so many things had some pretty clear issues when we look back at it as well. So speaking of Nazism, moving on to more happy topics. Uh, the, so the picture I often had painted in church was talking about Diedrich Bonhoeffer and you know, the Christian resistance to the Nazis within Nazi Germany at the time. While there were some great people doing some great work, they were the minority. So Nazi Germany was 95% Christian at the time. And these are, you know, this isn't just like a nominal, oh, I might go along on Christmas and Easter occasionally type thing, or, you know, fill out a form on census because my parents were Christian. These were people who were members of the church and actually, you know, paid church taxes, as they were called, which, you know, was presumably a more strict form of tithing. But, um, and, you know, for reference, less than 1% of Germany was Jewish at the time. Uh, but most churches and Christian leaders were behind the Nazi agenda. So a prominent Jew German theologian at the time, Gerhard Kittel, in 1933 advocated taking citizenship away from Jews so that special measures could be developed to remove these individuals from whatever jobs they might hold in important areas of German life. Law, medicine, education, the bureaucracy. Kittel went on to admit that outsiders might scream of brutality if Germany introduced such policies. In particular, Christians might be just the sort of people who would sympathize with seemingly unfair hardships faced by Jews, many of whom would seem upstanding and individually blameless. However, and he said, God does not require that we be sentimental, but that we see the facts and give them their due. But we, but we may also not become soft. If the battle is correct in its object, the Christian also has his place at the front. And so this was two years before the Nazis put forward the Nuremberg racial laws, which basically did this stuff. But this was a theologian advocating for this being the Christian stance and what a good Christian would do. Uh, also, the classic idea that I'd picked up was that the perpetrators of the atrocities in Nazi Germany were the, you know, you had the leadership at the top who were, you know, pure evil. And then you had some zealots who'd gone through the Hitler youth and so on supporting it. But they've done studies into this and scholars basically say that's not the case. The average person who was out there doing these terrible things were middle-aged family men who, you know, probably went to church on Sunday and, you know, had kids at home that they'd, you know, play with on the weekends and so on. That, you know, this was just, had become part of the German identity within it. And after the war, the church tried to plead innocence and went, oh, look, you know, we were 
we felt we couldn't speak out because we'd be decried. But they've actually gone and looked at a number of the sermons at the time that really show strong support for this, getting behind the agenda. And, um, and I, I hear like the, the quotes of the German theologian there and part of me goes, it wouldn't sound terribly out of place to hear out of the mouth of our immigration minister in Australia at the moment. That some of that sort of stuff of the dehumanizing of people, the talk about the lack of being sentimental for people and needing to be hard on the facts and so on. It feels all too chilling for me in many ways. So another narrative that's brought up in a similar vein is talking when we're, t we're talking about the you know, Christians fighting against injustice is John Newton. And William Wilberforce fighting against slavery, um, strong abolitionists who, you know, led to great change. However, these were the outliers in many cases yet again, that the church was some of the strong people going against it. And particularly if you look at the American context, south, the south of the United States, which, you know, split into the Confederacy was and still is the Bible belt of the country. It's the people who, you know, are the strongest believers and most committed to their faiths in the country. And so there... Uh, you know, I'm doing a lot of reading tonight because I've got quotes from these people because I want to show you their words. But so Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederate States, said at the time, Slavery was established by decree of Almighty God. It is sanctioned in the Bible in both Testaments from Genesis to Revelation. It has existed in all ages, has been found among the people of the highest civilization and in nations of the highest proficiency in the arts. One of the reverends at the time said the evidence that there were both slaves and masters of slaves in churches founded and directed by the apostles cannot be gotten rid of without resorting to methods of interpretation that will get rid of everything. Or in other words, a moral slippery slope. And so one thing I found in discovering this, so you've probably heard of the Southern Baptists. So they're the largest uh, Protestant denomination in the US. They became the Southern Baptists because the Baptist church split over the issue of slavery. And so the Southern Baptists wanted to keep their slaves and so they couldn't reconcile with the North and so became their own denomination instead. And this is now the sort of heritage that we have <laughs> as a result. In 1835, the Presbyterian Synod of West Virginia fiercely assailed the case for abolition, calling it a dogma, contrary to the clearest authority of the Word of God. In 1845, the Old School Presbyterian Assembly decreed that slavery is based on some of the plainest declarations of the Word of God. Charles Hodge wrote, if the present course of the abolitionists is right, then the course of Christ and the apostles was wrong. To call slavery sinful, he added, was a direct impeachment of the Word of God. Slavery was often managed with an attitude of almost being like a reverse missionary sort of service. That you were taking these people from these dark situations over in Africa and where they would have no hope of a good life, bringing them into your household, where you would show them good favour and convert them to be Christians. And as a result, this was your act of Christian charity to do to people. And so this is now everything that we don't really have... Uh, I'm not going to say we don't have because there is somewhere on the internet that everybody supports anything. But for the most part, we get slavery as wrong. That it's not something that people are sort of going, oh, that's one of those line ball issues that, you know, we still have church riffs over. But we have people going, you can't possibly accept slavery as wrong because if you do, you're undermining the entire Bible. That people were staking such strong claims on it. And to be honest, for some of these things, there's actually some pretty scary verses in the Bible about it. So in Exodus chapter 21, it says, When a slave owner strikes a male or female slave with a rod and the slave dies immediately, the owner shall be punished. 
But if the slave survives a day or two, there is no punishment for the slave is the owner's property. So basically going, just, you know, if you're going to beat him, beat him so they live a couple of days. And then it doesn't even get, it gets a bit better in the New Testament, but it still doesn't absolutely absolve this stuff. That Paul in Ephesians said, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. They also had the case that, well, um, one of the things that was in discussion at the time was that Jesus has never said anything for or against slavery. But the, the people who are pro-slavery took that as being basically an act of omission of going, if Jesus was against slavery, he would have said something about it. And so that was their case for supporting it. And so you look at this stuff and there's people who've done whole reams and books and other stuff saying why these verses don't, you know, aren't pro-slavery, why there's issues within this. But at the same time, a literal reading of the text just looking at this paints a pretty scary picture. And we're looking at, as soon as we start to talk about applying context, about looking at, you know, the product of the time, bringing in other theological verses, we can't help but bring human influence into that. You can't admit that that is purely a, you know, godly interpretation of it because there is no doubt some way that we've been involved in that process. And so if we're going, you know, that looking at the Bible as a source of truth, as the user manual for us, we need to apply other things that go around that. And I think that partly what I'm trying to sort of get at within here is that people have been so certain of their beliefs in it that I think we need to really be careful about how certain we become of some of our beliefs when we interpret it as well. And the church's support of oppression of people of colour hasn't just been limited to slavery. So we're moving on to apartheid now in the next fun chapter. So South Africa is another country with a huge, with a huge Christian representation, around 80%. But... Uh, you know, you've heard many of the stories about what's going on at the time. Apartheid was backed by virtually every reformed theologian in South Africa. The unambiguous and overwhelming support of apartheid by the reformed churches justified and legitimized the system. One of their most respected theologians, F. Potgeiter, summed up what was believed. It is quite clear that no one, um, I can't put on my Afrikaan accent, unfortunately, but I'm sure it'd be much better in that. No one can ever be a proponent of integration on the basis of the scriptures. It would be in direct contradiction of the revealed will of God to plead for a commonality between whites, coloured and blacks. And, you know, this isn't just limited to South Africa. Arlene was uh, shared with me um, a quote from Edmund Barton, our first prime minister, basically saying that there's no case for trying to say that we can ever have equality between the races, that, you know, there's too much difference between the whites and the Asians and so on. So that's the history of our country as well. Uh, similarly, an official statement of the Reformed Church stated, the, the principle of apartheid between races and peoples, also separate missions and churches, it is well supported by scripture. It was costly for any reform minister in South Africa to oppose this appeal to the Bible in support of apartheid. They were branded as opponents of the church to which they belonged and worse, opponents of what the Bible so plainly endorsed. In 1960, 10 leading reformed Afrikaner theologians published a series of essays condemning apartheid and the claim that the Bible endorsed racial separation. They were put on trial for heresy, found guilty and denounced by the prime minister, himself a theologian. America has had similar arguments against integration. So there's a university over there called Bob Jones University, which was founded by Bob Jones Sr., an evangelist, um, and has been a real focal point of a lot of things of integration over there. It was a white-only university and became the focus of a Supreme Court case that basically led to desegregation. 
Bob Jones uh, is on the record as saying, whenever we have the races mixed up in large numbers, we have trouble. These religious liberals are the worst infidels in many ways in the country, and some of them are filling pulpits down south. They do not believe the Bible any longer, so it does not do any good to quote it to them. They have gone over to modernism and they are leading the white people astray at the same time and they are leading colored Christians astray. But every good, substantial, Bible-believing, intelligent, orthodox Christian can read, what the, word of, read the, what the Word of God says and know that what is happening in the South now is not of God. Yeah, yeah it was really fun researching this stuff. <laughs> so, the, and what's interesting is, so when there was a Supreme Court case brought against them and they lost, this actually became the galvanizing for the religious right in America um, to start being more politically active and getting involved. It wasn't abortion, as is often put forward with the Roe v. Wade case. It was about not wanting to have black people in your schools. So, Bob Jones University reluctantly integrated after this, but had a ban on interracial dating until the year 2000. This policy was defended by Bob Jones's grandson saying the Bible clearly teaches stating in the 10th chapter of Genesis and going all the way through that God has put differences among people on the earth to keep the earth divided. So this is just some of the cases where we've been on the wrong side of the church has been on the wrong side of history. I haven't even touched on women's rights, but there's all sorts of fun stuff there as well, too. Australia, if you have a look at the stolen generation, that a lot of the perpetration of that was done by churches that once again were well-meaning, but came from a flawed concept of, you know, the noble savage and trying to rescue them from, you know, their backward lifestyles and things like that. We can't just dismiss this history, and this isn't meant to be a bashing on the church type message, but it's a case of us going, these are the things that have happened in the past. How can we stop that being our story? How can we stop getting 20, 30 years in the future and people looking back on us with the same attitude? So I started with Martin Luther and I want to finish with Martin Luther King Jr. So this is one of his letters from Birmingham jail, which sends chills down my spine. And, um, you know, that he's another one that for the most part we, you know, is now regaled as a hero, is told of, you know, is held up in high regard, but some of the most vocal advocates against him were people in the south of America claiming that how could he claim to be a preacher with the thing, you know, a Christian with the things he was doing. But so while he was imprisoned, uh, this is a letter that he wrote out. First, I must confess that over the last few years I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white Christian's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace which is absence of tension to a positive peace which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. 
In spite of my shattered dreams of the past, I came to Birmingham with the hope that the white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern serve as the channel through which our just grievances would get to the power structure. I had hoped that each of you would understand, but again, I have been disappointed. I have heard numerous religious leaders of the South call upon their worshippers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers say, follow this decree because integration is morally right and the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sidelines and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to get to rid our nation of racial and, e racial and economic injustice, I have heard so many ministers say, those are socialist Jews with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which made a strange distinction between body and soul, the sacred and the secular. So here we are moving towards the exit of the 20th century with a religious community largely adjusted to the status quo standing as a taillight behind other community agencies rather than a headlight leading men to high levels of justice. So, I was... We're saying to Arlene that initially my questions after that was just going to be a shrug emoji. Um, but, um, so here we go. I realize these questions might be a little bit loaded. Um, so first off, how can we stop ourselves being on the wrong side of history? And I'm open, you know, if you don't feel that that's our job, if you feel like then argue that or discuss that in your group, that's perfectly fine. That's how I'm feeling after seeing this stuff but I'm open to other people's interpretations. I'm not here to tell you that that's necessarily the conclusion to draw of this stuff, but have discussions. And then given the history of the Bible being used to support horrible things, how should we best use it? What should our relationship with it be? And how should we use it when talking about morality and other things? 